Well, we've been in this series uh, in the book of First John this summer so far, and uh, hopefully you've been, took up the challenge from a few weeks ago to just be reading through and pondering uh, each week the book uh, of First John as I've been reading through it myself and pondering various passages, and especially the passages that we're going to be looking at, the verses we'll be looking at today, they've made me consider a few uh, kinds of questions Maybe they've stirred these questions within your own heart today. Uh, what is needed, as we talk about maturity today, maturing in the faith, what is needed in, in order to be able to reach maturity in our faith? What does that look like? How do we make sure we're on a track that will, will move us towards maturity? Uh, I've pondered, what, why does it seem that some never reach that place? Seems that some never reach that place of maturity. Why, why is that? You know, in society, uh, it seems that uh, people remain like perpetual children for an ever-growing length uh, of time. I re- there was a movie in 2006 that came out called Fail- Failure to Launch, and it was about that whole idea of having these perpetual kids uh, living at home. And I've wondered, uh, has the church done the same thing? Are we raising believers to just be perpetual children? not really helping people to move to this place of maturity. But then I started pondering some questions for my, for my own life. Am, am I mature? Am, am I at a place of spiritual maturity? Am I on a, a track that's going to lead me and guide me to, uh, to that place? Um, asking myself, if, is there anything missing? Are there things missing in my spiritual journey? Or perhaps there maybe are some roadblocks, things that are impeding me from maybe moving to that next place uh, in my spiritual life. And those are the kinds of questions we're going to be tackling today. In the midst of the setting that John was writing and speaking into, uh, we can glean insight into those questions uh, for us today. John was speaking into a shaky time in the life of the church, where many had departed from the church, and it left those who were there kind of questioning the truth, wondering where they stand spiritually. And so John is both reminding them of the truth and challenging them. He was both grounding them and trying to center them in what the truth was, as well as guide them to a place uh, of maturity. John, interestingly, speaks about maturity from a place that sometimes can cause us as believers uh, to be uh, a little nervous. He speaks about coming to a place of maturity uh, by using spiritual experiences, spiritual experiences. Uh, Not sure if you know that John's gospel and some of John's writings were utilized Uh, especially into the second century by a group called the Gnostics. And they were utilizing some of the things that he wrote uh, and, you know, bending it and using it to say, oh, there's these other truths that you need to know. There's these spiritual experiences that you need to have. I wonder how John felt knowing that his authoritative word was being used uh, and bent in a way that he never intended. And a lot of times when something you're saying or doing is, is being misrepresented, what do we do? We, we tend to back away. Oh, I don't want to create that. But John in his letter presses forward and says, no, you need to have these critical experiences in order to reach maturity. But John does something. He anchors them. He anchors them in the life of Jesus Christ. And so they're not just these out there mysterious 
experiences or teachings. No, he anchors them in the life of Christ and says there are some spiritual experiences, some Christian experiences that are essential for our maturing and our development as we move forward in our relationship with God. And so that's what we're going to be looking at in 1 John. If you want to turn in your Bible to 1 John chapter 2, uh, we'll be covering verses 7 through 17, but we're going to start in the middle of the text in verse 12, and then we'll go to those uh, other passages. So 1 John chapter 2, starting in verse 12, John says, I'm writing to you, dear children, because your sins have been forgiven on account of his name. I'm writing to you fathers, and John's addressing both fathers and mothers. He's, he's covering both uh, in that. I'm writing to you fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I'm writing to you young men, because you have overcome the evil one. Then he says, I write to you, dear children, because you know the father. I write to you fathers, again, fathers and mothers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I write to you, young men and young women, because you are strong and the word of God lives in you and you have overcome the evil one. Bible scholar F.F. Bruce says this about this text. The threefold grouping relates to spiritual maturity, not years reckoned by the calendar. It is spiritual experience that is emphasized. And so what are the spiritual experiences that John is emphasizing that are so central to the spiritual life in order for us to reach maturity? And in these phrases are those experiences that are essential for us. John first addresses the children. He says, I'm writing to you, dear children. And what does he write? He says two things to the children. He's writing to them, and he uses the phrase, because your sins have been forgiven on account of his name. John is referencing the experience that is absolutely necessary for each person in their spiritual life when the weight of sin is upon us. And it's there even from a time of birth. But when that weight of, of sin is upon us, and we come to that place where we understand what Jesus has done. So John is anchoring this not just in a nebulous experience of forgiveness. No, he's anchoring it he says it's on account of his name, on account of the person and the work of Jesus Christ. And when we're under that and we feel the weight of our own nature, and then God lifts that off of us because of what Christ has done, we experience this lift of that burden. Sometimes we only know the weight that we were under when it's taken off of us. Isn't that true? Sometimes we only know how heavy something is when it's removed from us. And one of the critical experiences that John is anchoring to these, as he says, children, this is kind of the first step, this first experience that they would have would be that experience of salvation. There's nothing on earth like experiencing that burden and that weight that rests upon every human being being lifted off. And that's the starting place. 
That's the starting place. God is in the business of taking that weight that rests on us and removing it. That happened here this past Sunday. During uh, Pastor Jim's message, God had stirred in the heart of somebody here, and they experienced that very thing where that weight that was on them was, was lifted off. They thought, you know, you felt like you could go to the clouds because the burden had been released. And that's what John is anchoring this first critical experience that each one of us would have that moment and we would know what it's like when that burden is uh, lifted. But John says something else here that's very important. It's not just that initial experience that he's uh, wanting us to know. In the first part, he says, because your sins have been forgiven. But in verse 14, he says, because you know the Father. Because you know the Father. Having come out from under the penalty of sin, we are now given a new consciousness of God's intimate fatherhood over us. We step in to this very different kind of relationship with him. Not only are our sins forgiven, but it puts us in this kind of communion with God where he is our father. He's not the one then just looking down upon you, upon your sin or whatever, waiting to zap you. You you now step into this very family-oriented kind of relationship. And that's important. That is all a part of this early stage in our spiritual development. And it's not just the one-time moment that we experience that that's important. It's important that we live in an ongoing way in light of that relationship, in light of the fact that our our sin has been forgiven. The two uh, words that are used here in both uh, of these statements, because your sins have been forgiven, and then uh, when he says, because you know the Father, both of those are in the present perfect tense. It's the idea that there's this uh, event that happened in the past, so it's anchored in the past, it's anchored in what Jesus did, but it creates a perpetual present. And so the work that was done at the cross creates a perpetual forgiveness for us. And so we live in this place where we are absolutely secure. That's what John is wanting the children to realize that's what it's about, that whole identity piece. Who are you? And coming to recognize that you are loved by God. And that makes a significant difference when it relates to uh, our, our sin and when we do need God to forgive us. And I think this is where uh, we tend often to maybe miss the mark uh, in helping people to, to move forward. Uh, I think sometimes when we do sin, right, there's provision for that. But when we do sin, we often go and say, oh, Lord, would you forgive me for this? But in that, in that ask, there's a doubt in our, like, will you? Like, I'm hoping that he will. But the reality is he, he already has, right? He already has. What does John even tell us to do when we do sin? He doesn't say, like, go beg for forgiveness. He says, just confess it. 
Because the forgiveness part was already taken care of where? It was taken care of on the cross. And so when we find that we have sinned, John tells us, well, confess that. Confess that. And so we can live in a very different kind of relationship with God because we can call him Father. There's this uh, story that I love. Uh, how many of you are golfers? Anybody, any golfers? Okay, we have a lot of golfers, some very excited golfers out there. Well, I'm, an, I'm not even an average golfer. In my golf bag, there are irons only. I don't even carry the woods anymore. I did buy a full set. I don't even know where the woods are. I think I sold them because I can't hit them straight. So I usually end up on somebody else's fairway if I use the woods. So I stick with the irons even though I can't hit them as far because they're between usually somewhere between the tree lines. Uh, that's my golf experience. Uh, but uh, there were a team of golfers that were getting up to the first tee. And as they got up to the first tee, they were told uh, that in the game that they were going to be playing, they could take as many mulligans as they wanted. You could take as many mulligans as you wanted. Now, if you're a golfer, you know that the real rules don't even permit that. But if you're going to use a mulligan, it's usually just one for the 18 holes. Or maybe if you're in a generous scramble, uh, you get one for the front half and one for the back half. Well, you can imagine what happened. Like, wow, this is great. And so, you know, first guy gets up and doesn't hit that great of a shot. He's like, well, I'll take a mulligan. So guys are using mulligans uh, a lot in these first few holes. But something interesting happens as they get to like the fourth and the fifth hole the reality that they have a mulligan and they know that they have this mulligan, all of a sudden, their game starts changing and they start playing incredibly well. And they realize that they're no longer stuck trying to think about, oh, I hope I don't screw up this shot. They get up to the tee and say, oh, I wonder how well I'm going to hit this ball. And why do they begin to live in that way because there's a mulligan whenever they need it. That's what it means to live as children of God. Friends, you have a mulligan anytime you need it. And because you have a mulligan anytime you need it, you don't have to be sin-centered. You don't have to always be focused on trying not to, right? You can go up and try to just hit the ball. That's what it means to be secure in our relationship with God. God doesn't want us to get stalled out uh, just being children, just uh, with forgiveness. He wants to cement us in to that relationship uh, with him. Paul talked about this idea of being perpetual children in 1 Corinthians 1, 3. He says, brothers and sisters, I could not address you as people who live by the Spirit. That's going to be critical for when we get into the next phase. Uh, I could not address you as people who live by the Spirit, but as people who are still worldly, mere infants in Christ. I gave you milk, not solid food, for you were not yet ready for it. Indeed, you are still not ready. We can get stalled out in that phase of just being perpetual children. How might I still be living like a child? Am I so focused on my sin that I just keep on sinning? When I do sin, are my prayers more an attempt to get forgiveness rather than simply to embrace it? 
Maybe you've just gotten content knowing, oh, I'm a child of God, but you don't hunger for more. John wants his followers to come to a place of maturity. Well, forgiveness and embracing the fatherhood of God are foundational, but there's more to be built on that. And John speaks to the young. He speaks to the young. And while the young to us sounds like they don't have any experience and probably uh, don't uh, know too much, that's not the case for the way John uses the term. The young here, what does he say about them? He says, you are strong. You are strong because the word of God, it lives in them. The word of God lives in them. And then he uses this phrase twice. You have overcome the evil one. You've overcome the evil one. What does it mean to overcome someone? Well, if we were going to have, you know, have a couple of, uh, a wrestling match, a couple of guys were going to square off, how does one overcome another? If they're stronger, right? That's how you overcome someone, by being stronger. And so John is referring to the young here. You have overcome the evil one, meaning you've tapped into a power that's greater than the power of the enemy. Now, how many of you experience temptation? All right, keep going. Not all, all right. How, you've experienced temptation. How powerful? I mean, some of the temptations are like, eh, it's, like, it's a little bit powerful, right? But then there's other ones that like, like grip you right? And you know the power of darkness there, don't you? By the power of the temptations that you have faced, that you have wrestled with. How do you overcome that? Now, a lot of times in our own spiritual life, what do we do? We focus on resistance. Well, oftentimes resistance is based on whose strength, right? It's based on my ability and my capacity to say no. And John is saying that there's a power that's greater. You've overcome the evil one, Where does power come from? It comes from the Spirit of God. When the Spirit of God fills us, then we have a power greater than the power of sin and temptation and the devil that works in our lives. And so the critical experience that's necessary is the filling of the Spirit. When I think about Jesus and how he overcame the power of temptation, right? When he went out into the desert, that was a powerful time of testing in Jesus's life. And how did he overcome? How did he overcome and win, if you will, his battle against the evil one in those moments? Luke chapter four is pretty clear. Two things took place during that time. Right before he went out into the wilderness, what happened to him? The spirit came upon him, didn't it? The Spirit came upon him, and he uh, received power from the Holy Spirit. And then the Spirit led him out into the desert to be tempted by the evil one. So he had the power of the Holy Spirit. But John also says that the Word of God uh, lives in you. And so how else did Jesus, by the power of the Spirit upon Jesus, and Jesus, the Word of God lived in him. And so when the devil was tempting him, he spoke out this living word of God that had taken hold in Jesus' heart, and he defeated the power of the devil. And so to the young, he says, you have overcome the evil one. You have tapped in to a greater power, a, a, a power that's not human. Does that mean 
that they have won every battle in their life? No, no. But it does mean they know how to defeat the powers that come against them. You see, once we experience the fulfilling of the Spirit and the power of God comes into our life, and we we know that in one area of our life, because that's usually how it happens. In our initial experience of the filling of the Spirit, there's usually something going on in our life, some area where we might be feeling defeated, right? And God begins to work. And when we come to that place again where we're broken and we surrender and say, Lord, I can't defeat this on my own, what happens? The filling of the Spirit happens. But once that happens for the first time, once we have that initial crisis experience and we're filled with the Spirit, then how do we, and we learn, because you learn from that, don't you? You learn from that experience. So then when you're faced with another area of your life that the Holy Spirit's saying, hey, let's tackle this area, how do you do it? The same process. You come to the place where you surrender and you yield so that the power of God can come into you for that area of your life. And so it doesn't mean that the young uh, are not faced with fresh battles and they've overcome all the areas, but the key is they know how. They know how now to unlock the power of sin and darkness and the devil. And so they need to apply what they've already experienced in one area to this new area Now, that's saying a lot because a lot of times it takes us a lot to get to that place uh, of surrendering. But we know how once we've had that initial filling experience. Well, John desires uh, not only uh, for the children to understand forgiveness, to be secured in your relationship with God, for us to move to this place where uh, as the young, we, we learn how to have power over sin in our life. He wants us to move on to this place where we become spiritual fathers and mothers. Wouldn't it be amazing to have a church that has many, many spiritual fathers and mothers? I think John was in part setting this goal out there to say, this is where you want to end up. This is where you want to be. Spiritual fathers and mothers have this critical experience. It's called track record. Track record. John says to the spiritual fathers and mothers, you have known him who is from the beginning. Not just that you know the father, you're not just secure in your relationship with him, but saying that you, he has no, you've known him who's from the beginning, it's more expansive, it's wider. You know this God who has been from the beginning. And part of that is because to the fathers and mothers, they've traveled enough life experience moments where God has shown up, where there were new areas that they saw that they were failing in, like the young, and then the power of God come in, and they overcame, and that process has happened again and again and again, and God has filtered through that person's life to where they become a spiritual uh, anchor. I think of an oak tree where the roots went far out, and the tree is vast and big. But it's not just uh, traveling the miles and seeing God overcome thing after thing in your life. But as a father or mother, what does that imply? Usually you think of a father or mother as somebody who has what? Children, right? True spiritual fathers and mothers, 
they are developing other believers. They are helping others to have that critical experience of salvation. They're stepping alongside of others who are wrestling in an area uh, uh, maybe of sin or the, another area they need to overcome to see the power of God come. That's what spiritual fathers and mothers do. They step alongside the children and the young to help them develop. I hope as I'm even sharing this, and I think it was John's intent that it would create a longing within us to say, that's the kind of person I want to be. I want to mature in my faith. Uh, I don't know if you know the name Neil T. Anderson. Uh, he's written a lot on spiritual warfare, uh, a lot on anchoring yourself in centering yourself in who you are and your identity in Christ. And he says this about maturity in the church. It's a, it always hit me as a kind of a good challenge. He says, the greatest liability to a church is saints who got old but didn't mature. All they want to do is censor. You can't do that around here, young man. We've never done it that way before. Some actually regress and become more critical, arrogant, and judgmental. The greatest liability of the church is saints who kind of get old but don't grow up. We live as perpetual children. But I think God is wanting us to just grow uh, in this place of maturity. Part of growing to this place of maturity, John, in the two parts of the text that we haven't read yet, uh, the reason I think John speaks first to the children, then to the fathers, and last he addresses uh, the young men and the young women, uh, we would generally think, especially in these times, that John would address the spiritual fathers and mothers first. But he addresses uh, the children then he goes to the spiritual fathers and mothers, and then to the young men. In the church, I think, uh, when we become spiritual fathers and mothers, we're supposed to be helping coach and develop those who are strong, where the Word of God lives in them, and those are the ones who are really to help propel the church forward. They're active uh, in that battle, and so I think the young must defeat two uh, major foes um, in order to overcome and really walk into a place of maturity. Uh, in the first uh, one we're going to address, a self-focused life is overcome by a disposition of loving others. And we see this in the opening verses, starting in verse 7. Um, starting in verse 7, he says, Dear friends, I'm not writing to you a new command, but an old one, which you've had since the beginning. This old command is the message you have heard. Yet I am writing you a new command. Its truth is seen in him, meaning Jesus, and in you, because the darkness is passing and the true light is already shining. Anyone who claims to be in the light but hates a brother or sister is still in darkness. Anyone who loves their brother and sister lives in the light and there is nothing in them to make them stumble. But any Anyone who hates a brother or sister is in the darkness and walks around in the darkness. They do not know where they are going because the darkness has blinded them. One of the challenges, I think, for the young is to overcome the self-focused life and develop a disposition of loving others. This quote-unquote old command that John is referencing. Well, it's an old command in part because it's in the Old Testament. In Leviticus 19, it talks about loving what? Your neighbor, right? Love your, your neighbor. Uh, it's old in the sense that Jesus also spoke it 
So he's even pointing back to the time when Jesus walked on earth and said, love each other as I have loved you. So it's old in those ways, but he says there's something also new about this command. Uh, Jesus brought with this command a whole new understanding, didn't he? He didn't just say, love your neighbor. Uh, He said, love your what? Enemies. Not just love your neighbor, love your enemies. And so he was calling them to a whole new depth a whole new dimension of this expression of love. But he also delivered a new power, didn't he, to accomplish that new depth, right? By the power of the Spirit, we can love in capacities that are not humanly possible. And so if we are, as the young, uh, one of the foes to defeat is this self-focused life. Scholar Gary Burge says this, love becomes a genuine value only when it is tested, only when we must reach beyond ourselves and love someone we do not wish to love. This is the caliber of the love John has in mind. And nothing puts the self-focused life to death like loving others. I remember this experience that I had. It was early on in my ministry, and we were planting the church in the old Brooklyn area. I was on staff at Grace Church in Middleburg Heights, and I remember Pastor Jonathan. And if you know Pastor Jonathan, he's he's a very kind man, and so he called me into his office, and he wanted to have a chat. (laughs) And uh, I didn't know it was coming, Uh, but uh, we sat down, and a couple of the staff that I worked with. One was the graphics person, and then the other person was the uh, ministry assistant that worked with me. And of course, I'm, I'm new to church planting and very overwhelmed, very overloaded. And as a part of that, I really, I only saw my own life and all the pressures that I was under, and I was starting to shell out all of these things that needed to get done uh, in a way that was not valuing of the people around me. And so those, those two uh, assistants went and talked with Jonathan, and then Jonathan came and talked with me. And the long and short of the conversation was, Jeff, you're being selfish. Now, if you know Jonathan, he didn't say it quite like that. <laughs> but you know what? I got, I got the picture. He was calling me to see, even though I'm feeling overwhelmed and under pressure, and that's now being spilled out on the people around me. He said, can you see the people around you? How, how are the people around you being impacted by how you're interacting with them? And it was on account of seeing outside of myself, right, that uh, this self-focused life and this, this foe uh, began to be defeated uh, in my life. But there's another foe. Uh, It's not just the self-focused life that John addresses, but it's the love of the world. And the love of the world must be overcome by the love of the Father. In verse 15, uh, John says this, Do not love the world or anything in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in them. For everything in the world, and he gives three things here, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. It comes not from the Father, but from the world. The world and its desires pass away, but whoever does the will of God lives forever. And John sums up the pressures that we as the young face. 
by saying the lust of the flesh. Now, this isn't primarily sensual desires. The way the, the words are positioned here in the original language, it, it really is in a general way describing the desires of the human heart. Whatever cravings, now they could be sensual ones, but the cravings, the desires of the heart, these are the things the heart longs for. And we know what it's like when the small little things in our hearts start getting watered. They start to grow and they start to take over. And these three things often work together, the lust of the flesh. So there's desire in the heart. But another part of that is the lust of the eyes. This is the idea of the things that we see that we want. Now, this is why the marketing experts put all the candy in the checkout aisle when you take your kids to check out, right? It's the lust of the eyes. It's the things that they see. And do they ever not add, oh, can I have that? Can I have that? Can I have that? I want, right? It's visual. You're putting in front of them the things. So you're working with the cravings of the heart. This even happened to Jesus in the desert, right? The lust of the flesh. What was that? Uh, he tempted him with bread. His body wanted food. He tempted the tempter tempted him with bread, but then he took him to, uh, you know, to look at all the kingdoms and say, oh, that's visual. He wanted him to see it. That's the lust of the eyes. And then it's the pride of life. And these things come at us. The pride of life is boasting over the position, the power, the things we have, kind of a sense of our own superiority, or it's the ambition to get it. Isn't that what Jesus was thrown at him? You know, hey, you can have all of this. And so these things face us as the young. But what does John say? You have overcome the evil one. There is a power available, friends, so that you can overcome. Well, as you think about your spiritual journey, where are you in your spiritual journey? Are you still uh, in this place of the children where you're trying to cement in your identity? Your, your core relationship, trying to move uh, to a place where you know that the mulligan is always there? Or have you moved into the place of the young where you are experiencing power uh, to defeat sin and temptation in your life? What do you need in your life to be able to move forward towards being the mature? Maybe there are some roadblocks in the way. Maybe there are uh, some things that God wants to touch on that he's brought to mind even today. Well, Pastor Jim and the team's going to come and lead us in a song. And as they do, uh, it touches on these things, themes. The song is more and more of you. The opening lyrics say this, we have had enough of getting everything we want. We are weary of living this life just for us. What does that sound like? It sounds like the children, doesn't it? So I wonder as we sing those lyrics, I wonder if that might just be our confession. Lord, we've had enough. We, we, don't, we don't want to be stuck in that place. We've had enough of getting what we want, weary of living this life just for us. The song goes on, we want more and more and more and more of you. Maybe you want to be in that place where you're overcoming and you say, Lord, I know what I need to overcome in this area where I'm experiencing kind of this oppression against me. I need more and more of you. Holy Spirit, fill us with your fire. Give us your desires because nothing else 
will do. Would you stand as we sing it, proclaim it, grab onto it from the depth of your heart today?